Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and this episode is actually going to be recorded on video, so you can watch it on our YouTube channel, so you can visit our website, libertarianchristians.com, if you want to watch this conversation. And the reason for that is every time we have three guests where we're going to have like a discussion about Christian or libertarian topics that are sort of like in-house sort of debates and discussions and just, you know, seeking out clarity. We want to do it on video because we feel like that's interesting. People like to watch. And so who I have here is Dr. Norman Horn joining me. Hey, Norman. Hey, Doug. And I have Todd Lewis returning. And Todd and I had a conversation back in episode 231, which was not too long ago, Todd, where we talked about, I believe, pacifism and some historical things there. And so that was a really great conversation. And what nobody would know, except you and me, is that we ended up talking after the episode was done for, I think, longer than the episode recording time was, or something very, very close to it. And it's on the topic that we're going to actually talk about tonight, because we were like, hey, we should have just kept recording, and then we would have had two podcast episodes. But <laughs> this, I think, is a, better, is a better venue, because we have uh, multiple views here. So what are we going to be talking about? Well, as you can probably see in the title or hear or not here, but like, see, when you tapped on the next episode, <laughs> we are going to talk about self-ownership and the non-aggression principle. And that's, of course, a very uh, important topic to libertarians. And so the reason we want to have this conversation is that Todd has some questions and concerns about the non-aggression principle and the principle of self-ownership. He's actually had debates with Walter Block and Stefan Kinsella. And so if he can hold his own to them, and be very polite in an actual debate. I mean, my goodness, he's definitely a great discussion partner here. So, uh, Todd, thanks for being on here because I, I know that Norman and I are sort of on the same side, and you're on a different side, and so we're going to have a really great but discussion here. We're also all you know brothers in Christ together, so this is a yep. great venue to have a discussion yeah. and just you know air some ideas and you know hash it all out. Yeah. Norm, are you saying that maybe Christians don't always have good civil conversations and we're here to demonstrate that you can? <laughs> well, I think it's presumptively <laughs> the case that we should be able to. And that's it especially sure as those who are committed to, you know, I mean, Todd is obviously he's committed to pacifism and we're committed to non-aggressions and those are similar enough. I mean, obviously there's some major differences as well, but yeah. being so much in fellow travelership, if you will, this shouldn't be that hard. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, and I would say that I probably align more with pacifism than I would with merely the non-aggression principle and, oh, you know, sort okay. of the libertarian thing. So I'm like a 99% pacifist. <laughs> I, I, I sort of humorously say, tell people I'm a gun rights pacifist because I do believe in gun rights, but I don't, I don't own one <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to use one. So, all right. Uh, so anyway, so. The non-aggression principle, as most libertarians know, is a super important principle to understand. It's the foundation, the bedrock in a lot of ways. And, and I realize that I'm just being general here and some people are going to email me and say, oh, well, no, but it's this. Okay, I understand. But it is a very basic principle of libertarianism. And so, Norm, what is your basic, I mean, what, what definition do you go by when you're like, you know, you meet someone at a coffee shop and they're just like, hey, you look like a libertarian. What does NAP stand for? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, obviously, not, NAP stands for non-aggression principle. And I think it's just the basic summation of the libertarian creed, which is that we think that aggression is fundamentally unjustified. And that is the initiation of force against person or property. And that comes in with the peculiar way that libertarians in general establish the basis of property rights. You know, that the ownership in physical property, objects that are exterior to ourselves, and then self-ownership itself are fundamental to the existence of man Mm -hmm. and the ability to interact with our surroundings. And so in order to do that, we establish these kind of norms of that we are able to do that which we want to do with our own bodies and with our own justly acquired property. So long as we are not initiating force against others, then that is at least rightfully done, if not necessarily morally done. So that's, I mean, that's a real cursory overview per se, and the implications therein are vast, but I can leave it at there for now. Yeah. Okay. Todd, is that your typical understanding of it as well? Is there any, any nuance there that wasn't elucidated that you kind of understand to be part of it? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is uh, thank you for the kind words, Doug. I'm happy to be here. So the way I'm looking at the NAP is there's the general shorthand, I own my body or I own myself. Mm -hmm. Now, Walter Block has stated on numerous occasions that the NAP and self-ownership are, to paraphrase, two sides of the same coin. Now, that's Dr. Block speaking for himself, but I think that's a position that a lot of libertarians hold to. Because then the question is how you determine Mm -hmm. what is aggression and, well, by determining who owns something. And so the idea that the NAP and self-ownership are two sides of the same coin is that, well, you need to have both understand the holistic starting point of the libertarian position. Okay. So what is your, I mean, just let's just jump into it. What are your sort of fundamental concerns with that as a Christian? And And I realize that like people can go back and listen to you might want to share where exactly they could probably listen to your debates if it's still available publicly with Walter Block and Stephen Kinsella, but you were arguing against them who are both at the moment claimed to be atheists. And they have sort of a different rubric in understanding their relationship with God. And so we can make different claims here when in this conversation. So as we think about it as Christians, where are your sort of concerns or problems with the NAP? Yeah. Use well, different ways of saying that all, all sure. throughout. NAP, NAP. <laughs> so when I, when I look at a, at a position that, you know, is properly grounded, so one of the things that libertarians was a strength of theirs from, say, 2005 to 2015, when there were a lot of these freewheeling debates between libertarians and statists, libertarians and socialists, a very powerful rhetorical tool they would use was, well, look, we, we have this clearly stated, clearly defined, logical, derived principle that we can then use to solve all these problems. And you socialists and you statists are, mm-hmm. don't know where your first principles are. You just use fuzzy language and fuzzy logic. And we should be preferred. So when they're making the pitch to the listener, yeah. we should be preferred because we have this fully orbed, robust foundation based in logic and reason for this position. And I would argue that at the time, maybe around 2005, you know, I, I thought that was convincing. Eventually, I started to see what we might call glitches or things that didn't seem to add up. And then I started to think, well, maybe it isn't quite as well-founded as the libertarians might want to think it is. So, for example, when you analyze the state by own my body, there's a sort of lot that is already assumed by the person saying it. 
And there are assumptions that I don't think are fully properly unpacked yet. So we could say that what is the I and what is the body? On the one hand, if you're a libertarian who's of the atheist variety, you most likely think that they're the same thing, right? And in, in philosophical materialism, there's the mind-brain identity or mind-body identity where everything is reducible to the constituent material parts. Now, if that's the case, then the relationship being described of the I and the body is an identity relationship, not an ownership relationship. And if it's an identity relationship, then it would follow that everything owns itself because everything is identical to itself, which proves far too much. And a libertarian would, would balk at that. And, and you're saying like not just humans, but other things. Yeah, because they're right. identical to themselves. Uh, the okay. NAP is an identity relationship rather than an ownership relationship. Okay. Now, if you're a Christian, you could say, well, well, the soul owns the body. And this is a libertarian Christian podcast. That might be a position that you'd want to hold. And that actually came up in the uh, Walter Block discussion. Now, mm, yeah. that's interesting. There'd be a lot of libertarians that might argue, well, no, the soul isn't a thing out there that owns the body. But what I'm saying is if you look underneath the assumptions behind the NAP that make it intelligible, it could go a couple of different ways. Some ways libertarians might not be comfortable with, some ways that might cause further intra-libertarian discussion. What I'm saying is that that level of work that is what Thomas Aquinas might call a preamble. The preamble to the NAP hasn't really been done yet. And until that's done, I think it's to that extent yeah. weaker. What would that look like for you if the work had been done in some way? I mean, I would argue, maybe we'll keep going on about this, that it it may not have been definitively done in one particular way, but there's been a handful of ways that people justify that there is this self that can be sort of owned in a sort of legal framework. Yeah. And so what would that look like for you to see a more robust version of that? Well, what I would like to see is a more fully orbed idea of the self and the body. So if I remember correctly, Rothbard stated that his philosophy was such that he didn't have to deal with metaphysical questions because whether God existed or didn't exist, his theory of ownership and rights and property would, would exist adequately well in either possible universe. So it was a sort of like a noma, non-overlapping magisteria. But the problem is I don't think you can actually do that. I think what you're going to have to do is figure out what is the self and then what is doing the owning. So for example, Hume viewed the self as just a bundle of impressions. But how could a bundle of impressions own something? And there are a lot of libertarians that are empiricists and informed by Humean thought, mm -hmm. which I think, well, that needs to be teased out. And some ideas of identity are such that they prove too much or too little. And the libertarians want to prove a specific set of things. And so what I would like to see is a more fully orb view of the self and the body, such that once we properly understand what are meant by those things, the libertarians can then exclude what they want to exclude in the definition and include what they want to include in the definition without either including too much or too little. Okay. So there's some really interesting things you said there. And I think that one note that I'd almost immediately want to kind of seize upon is say, you know, the history of mankind in our political philosophies that have, you know, that have undergirded all sorts of, you know, movements of peoples and, and all, all of this has been a history that has, first of all, had, in a sense, intuited certain things a bit, you know, we, we know that kind of need to be true at times. Like, you know, we understand things like the law of identity. I mean, and it, I'm not trying to be specifically Randian here, but it's kind of important that once we have this sort of underlying basis of what is reality itself, 
we don't necessarily have all the ways in which we prove it, but we kind of have this, sometimes we even call it that kind of common sense philosophical views on such things. The law of identity is, is such that if we can't really abrogate it, if we did, then everything kind of falls apart. <laughs> you know, and so we all kind of understand that. So I think there's things that we've intuited about the ways in which we should interact with each other, where even if we don't have perfect justifications right off the bat, we're trying to come to and, you know, progressively better understandings of them. So I guess what's interesting here to me is that like, yeah, it's like we know that we haven't always undergirded all of our aspects of philosophy with perfect moorings, if you will. In fact, you know, Mises is, for instance, well known to have been, relatively speaking, a utilitarian in this regard. And yet we still revere the Austrian school and, and the edifice of thought that he built upon that because it, it works and it's right and it's correct because it it has the correct foundations. But he didn't go so far as to say certain things about ethics because he didn't even know. In fact, he wasn't sure about a, a number of things there. So he just chose not to make as large pronouncements about them because he couldn't, he couldn't ultimately get there. Now, that being said, the idea of self-ownership is one where I think we have a Christian sense of conformity, if you will, I think together to where we see a concordance of thought in political philosophy here, that freedom and liberty is the default. And we can see that, we believe that we see that in scripture, and we believe that we see that in just logical progression of thought as well. And so I guess the question I kind of have is, do you feel that there is a, not just a, an incompleteness to the theory at this point? And, and I think, you know, like, we could bring up Goodell's incompleteness theorem as well and wonder if that's actually applicable here. Is that, you know, okay, well, how far do we have to go before we have to make some base level assumption that we cannot prove, you know, incompleteness, right? And to what extent do you say there is a disjuncture in the non-aggression principle or the self-ownership axioms with traditional Christianity to the point at which you would say, well, this cannot be part of it anymore. And I guess that's where I see the, the next kind of disjuncture here mm -hmm. to me is that like, I guess in some, if what you're suggesting is that there's an incompleteness yet, okay, like let's get better at it. Sure. But if you're saying that it is actually a disjuncture that cannot be bridged, then I think that's where I would have a more significant disagreement. Sure. So before I answer, I just have one quick question. When you say, like, say the law of identity, right? Yeah. The law of identity, the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction can be transcendentally proven by arguing. If you argue against it, you're actually assuming it. Yeah. And so that, that demonstrates it as a logical axiom. Are you saying that as a libertarian, you treat the non-aggression principle slash self-ownership principle at that level of philosophical axiom? Or are you say you treat it at a lower level? So I think that like the Hoppian argumentation ethics premise, which we you know haven't really delved into that, I think that it makes sense. Is it possible that I'm wrong? Oh, I'm willing to have that discussion. But I think that it is approaching that level, you know, from its presentation as I understand it. Could I be wrong? Could I be misunderstanding it? I'll also hazard that for now. But I think it's getting close. <laughs> okay, so to answer your First question, I would make two claims and I'll try to say these as modestly as possible. One, there are at least three people that I think make the most compelling first principles argument, or at least rather 
these are the, the best the libertarians have put forward. One is Rothbard and Fermi Liberty. One is Kinsilla and the essay, How We Come to Own Ourselves with the Objective yeah. Think. And then the other one is Hans Hoppe with Argumentation Ethics. Yeah. And what I would argue is that, firstly, those three arguments would all tentatively fail. And okay. the, the other argument then is, okay, whether they fail or not, the second argument is, I do think that there is some tension and friction between a libertarian mindset and a Christian mindset, at least when it comes to the issue of ownership and self. Okay. So, so I don't know which one you want to go to first. There, there's a lot to go in either one. Well, I want to jump in for a second and just sort of, I'll kind of give my angle on it, so to speak, and maybe that will inform the discussion a little bit. I'm, <laughs> I'm jokingly, it's like, I have three kids, I've got a busy life. And I used to have more time for theoretical kinds of things and ways of arguing and, and you know, and thinking about all these things. And like now I'm just like, maybe I'm just getting old and curmudgeonly, even though <laughs> I'm like hardly middle age yet. And sort of like, I look at things as like, how are they useful, right? And usefulness and utility are very important to me. Now, again, that's not a basis for sound judgment and like proving things, of course. But one of the ways in which I sort of evaluate whether or not, you know, something passes the sniff test or whether it still holds true if I'm being challenged, you know, decades after sort of affirming something such as the non-aggression principle, because it's been a decade and a half or more that I've sort of embraced that as a libertarian, is I want to know, is it something that is useful in the domain of what I'm trying to argue about? So for instance, if I'm in an argument over whether or not I should be taxed, or if I'm in an argument over whether or not someone's allowed on my property, or just the question of who has the ability to decide something, the issue of self-ownership, like we can call it whatever we want. I mean, I've often said things like, oh, it's like, you know, self-stewardship or, you know, whatever, because I believe in God. I believe that God gives us stewardship over our resources and over our, our actions because God gives us agency and we have things within our you know, realm, that we can call that self-ownership in a useful way. And I do care that self-ownership is a legitimately provable or I should say bona fide belief to hold. And I totally believe that. But with respect to what I just said there, Todd, is there a way in which a soft self-ownership is acceptable to you? Okay, yeah, yeah. So let, let's let's look at this. I think it's generally agreed upon that from libertarian theory, the basic social unit is the individual. Okay, and yeah, and you, then, would you say that that's a Christian view as well? Like, would you say that that's compatible with your Christian beliefs? So what I would say is, well, actually, hold on, hold on. There's something we kind of need to differentiate here. It's important to realize that at least from libertarian theoretical concerns, that we're methodological individualists. So that right. our method is logically flows from individual actions, okay? However, that does not mean, and I'm sure you're not going to go this direction, so I'm, this is not an accusatory sense, but rather just a clarification sense, that there's a difference between saying I'm a methodological individualist and I'm some sort of structuralized, you know, universalized individualist, you know? Like, we're not atomists here. We're just, we have to deal with our logic of action through individual. Now, some libertarians take that the wrong way, or they sometimes get funky about this, and that's and we can end up in wrong places there. That is not to discount, however, the logic of it. So anyway, continue. Sorry, I, just, yeah. I figure you're no, going fine. that direction. So, so what I would say is the begin to see some tension 
minimally speaking, between even a methodological individualism. Because in 1 Corinthians 12 to 31, we have the, the famous passage of the body of Christ. And there's a the key line that I want to focus in on here is, if one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Now, if we listen to say, again, I've read a lot of Walter Block, so I'm going to be using him a lot. Walter Block said that we have no positive obligations to anybody else. In his uh, radical Austrianism lectures, which were like 10 or 11 years ago, he gives it a, a moral example about somebody drowning and says, well, look, if you help them, that's super derogatory, good for you. But, you know, you don't have a moral obligation per se to help that person. So if, okay, so we have- Oh, yeah, okay. A qua Christian, qua Christian, right? What James says, you know, he says, well, look, if somebody's hungry or without clothes and we just say, be warm and be filled, you know, we're not showing faith to that. And by the way, this person is very specifically your brother. Right, so that's not yeah. Rando on the street, not some, you know, guy with a cup in his hand saying, give me some pennies. It's your Christian brother in Christ. And now, obviously, there's a couple ways a Christian could hold both of these positions. One would be, well, that's methodological for libertarianism, and this is what I believe as a Christian. But what I think is going to happen, either consciously or unconsciously, is if you have two things in tension, whatever those two things happen to be, it could be physical objects and physics, it could be two ideas. They're generally going to be resolved. The tension is going to be resolved some way. Now, it could be resolved in favor of one or the other. And also, failing to plan is planning to fail. So if you're not aware of the tension and you're not planning to resolve it in a way that you would want to resolve it as the Christian, yeah. you're, sort of, you're sort of running blind in yeah. a sense. Okay. Yep. You know, you make a fair point there because I think that this is a repeatedly has come up you know, even amongst, as you go to our Facebook group, for instance, these sorts of things like, you know, how am I to think about this as a libertarian? Or how am I to think about this as a Christian? So there are these kind of differentiators that kind of cop up. So it's kind of like saying, well, let's think about like, perhaps the difference between what we consider as appropriate moral behaviors around, say, drug use or something like that, to where can I simultaneously say, that shooting up with heroin, you know, as an addict is morally wrong, but that the state, there should not be a law against doing these certain things that are, yes, going to be harmful to you. Yes, you know, cause you significant trouble, you know, financially, you know, morally, whatnot. I mean, all these things are they're very relevant, but that it is not in the purview of the government to deal with it, per se. So we see then that there is a tension involved. Like, well, what am I supposed to think about this? I think this thing is morally wrong. I think that this should not be done. But what about this state over here that's doing this? Oh, how am I? Well, okay, we differentiate what is the purview of the state in this regard. And so we can resolve attention that way. With regards to something like a moral action that a positive obligation that one should take, however, such as what is it to uh, intervene on behalf of someone who is, you know, in a position of, danger. I think that Bloch is just like, and this has historically been, you know, a debate amongst libertarians here. And you're right to criticize Bloch on the idea of positive obligations is that as libertarians, we can't really be against positive obligations when they are consensually agreed to. So for Bloch to say that like no positive obligations can exist ever is kind of like, well, that's, that's just, we don't mm. agree in that respect with him. And so we can respectfully disagree there. And I think that's something that, in fact, 
Kinsella, for instance, and even Rothbard to an extent, I believe, addresses that this is a reality, this can't exist, this is a good thing. The classic example that um, demonstrates how Block is indeed incorrect here is with regards to abortion and pregnancy in general. The idea of the invited guest. There's a variety of ways you can kind of talk around that. And I just, you know, as much as I respect Dr. Block and I've been very vocal about the fact that I do have great respect for him. It's entirely possible that LCI wouldn't exist if not for, in part, Block's influence. But that's on a different level than that particular point of, you know, narrow point that I think he's incorrect (laughs) about as well. So much love to the good doctor, but he's incorrect. And in fact, you know, you may be aware that one of our uh, regular authors and guests on the program and whatnot, Carrie Baldwin, debated Walter Block on the topic of abortion and evictionism, and, and in my opinion, pretty much trounced him. And <laughs> so to be fair, like that, again, I want to both praise and, and criticize in that. Yeah, sure. There. But I don't think we have to uh, deny positive obligations entirely in order to affirm self-ownership, you know, and so on. Just one thing to add. Now, obviously, this is anecdotal, but what I've observed in my own experience is there's like the actual libertarians themselves who are self-consciously libertarian and using libertarian arguments. And there are lots of people who are maybe broadly conservative and they think like libertarians, but they don't self-consciously think like libertarians. It's sort of like they read some article over there. And what I would say is I, I tend to see a drift over the decades where Again, this is just my own experience, but what it looks like to me is that as, as this idea grows, the tension grows with it. Yes. And so Christians become, well, frankly, less giving, less charitable. And I'm like, oh, they, they, they seem to be going at the same rate together. And that's where one of my concerns comes from, because there is that certain libertarian strand that if you mm-hmm. take very, you know, radically will lead you to that. Or also, you know, Walter Block said in Defending the Indefendable that charity was dysgenic and we need to let the sick and the poor die. So, <laughs> well, <there's... laughs> well, that that was a little, yeah, that that's a bit uh, a bit awkward for him. But I, he has some interesting <laughs> ways of wording, that's for sure. <laughs> but, but I think another more to the point thing is since we're all in this room Christians, yeah. from the point of view of God is where truth resides. So what God sees in the world Whatever that happens to be, that's what really is true. And the mm-hmm. problem is we don't always get to see that. We either because we're, you know, blinded by our own sins. We see or through a because, glass darkly. Exactly. We see yeah. through a glass darkly. And this this is the real issue of the nub of what, as I understand the Christian doctrines, and this is again more of a mere Christianity. So I'm not going to try to appeal to any specific tradition. But what we have is, for example, Romans 6, 15 to 19. Paul says, you know, you were first under bondage to sin. And then now you are a slave to Christ. And he says, you know, that to which you give yourself over to, you are a slave to. So what the Christian anthropology seems to indicate is that a radical bodily autonomy of ownership, either before or after conversion, doesn't really exist. Before conversion, we're sold into bondage to sin. And then after conversion, we're sold into bondage to Christ. And that's just not a euphemism because, of course, Christ then lays a lot of obligations on us as Christians that we then do. And so if somebody says, well, in the abstract, there's these individuals out there that are rational agents that have self-ownership over their body, maximal bodily autonomy. I, I don't see where that fits into a Christian anthropology in this sort of like deep entrenched sense. Mm. 
Yeah, that's interesting you'd, you'd put it that way because, you know, we could correspondingly also say that there's the scriptures that suggest, you know, he who has been freed in Christ is free indeed. So where do we where do we fit those in as well? Now, we could just say, well, all of it's just by metaphor or something like that. And we don't, But we don't really want to say that. That wouldn't be right. So in what sense are we, however, both free and a slave here? I think, like, in what sense? Well, let me put it this way. In one sense, as Christians, I think we would all agree that this is what I brought up to Doug the last time we talked. Mm -hmm. If we as Christians or even John Locke said that God owns us, what that would mean is that, minimally speaking, maximal bodily autonomy doesn't exist for us. Because if we look at an ownership relation between a master and a slave or a master and indentured servant, not that Christians are on the same level as an indentured servant or a slave, but the, the relationship is analogous. Any freedoms that we might have had are under the authority of someone higher than us, and that higher authority impinges, whether we willed it or not, on those subordinate freedoms. And so to say that a Christian is still a self-owner in the more robust, maximal sense that libertarians like to use it, I don't think fits very well, because at the very least, we have put ourselves under God's authority such that we don't have maximal bodily autonomy. We, for example, can't, as a Christian, we, we can't commit fornication, or as a Christian, we can't right. steal. And so, well, let's stick to beyond what libertarianism requires, because they don't let you steal yeah. either. Well, yeah. No. but Yeah, but you know what I mean? We, we've actually submitted to a whole lot of other things that sure. go beyond what the libertarianism requires. And so the kind of maximal sense of bodily autonomy that a robust theory of NAP would teach or would argue for, I don't really see in the Christian anthropology. Yeah, but it, but that's like separate fields, if you will. The Venn diagram of these things do not necessarily match up. What you might have a right to do is not necessarily that which you ought to do. That seems to me to be fairly natural distinction that it, there are plenty of things that I can do that I ought not do, that I have a right to do, but it wouldn't be a good idea. I mean, I don't really want to appeal even to like the idea of, well, everything is permissible, but not all things are beneficial. I don't even think I, we need to appeal to right. that type of verse yeah. in order to do that. There's plenty of just logical suppositions there. We get that. But an, another thing that kind of comes to mind, at least kind of to what you said, is that while I think it is a, it's not a unfair of you to characterize what some libertarians put out there as being like maximal bodily autonomy, I don't think that realistically, especially from just, you know, once you start delving into the philosophical foundations, that really that we can characterize what libertarianism supposes is true as being maximal bodily autonomy. I mean, we are already limited by so many things around us that to say that we have this sense of kind of unlimited freedom is certainly not true. Does maximal bodily autonomy suppose that we can make all the molecules in our body do our bidding at any given moment? And the answer is to that, of course, no. There are plenty of things that are constrictions upon our activities. Whether our microbiome is misbehaving a little bit that day and I'm about to puke my guts out because I'm, you know, I managed to ingest some salmonella or something like that. Or, you know, the fact that I just don't have the ability to, you know, be Superman. I can't just fly around and make my mm. molecules go, you know, into the sun 
and expect them to survive. And so like physics actually does put, you know, limitations on us. I don't think it's that far different from the idea that, well, just because God has a claim upon us, that that would then disabrogate the idea of self-ownership as it pertains to the way individual humans relate to each other. I think those are categorical differences in the same sense that self-ownership and bodily autonomy per se is not disabrogated by the fact that physics restricts our ability to be totally free. Well, and I'll add that, like you were talking about their separate fields, Norm, and in my mind, the principle or, yeah, we'll just use the word principle of self-ownership, it was created as a rubric for who gets to decide what I can do, right? Like it's not meant to be, like you talked about, like we're interested in the truth from God's perspective, but it's not trying to answer that who owns what question in sort of metaphysical sense. I think I'm using that term right in the metaphysical sense, but more in a functional utilitarian, like with respect to the two of you, you don't own me. You have no claim over me or my agency and only I do, or I have the ability to, you know, sort of contract myself out. And so I, you know, sort of willingly give up certain freedoms or or whatever, but I'm the only person that can actually do that. I think a lot of like the idea of autonomy and agency more so than this sort of metaphysical self-ownership sense. Like to me, again, probably more like Rothbard and, and I think even Kinsella said this in his debate with you, Todd, is that, okay, fine, God owns us. Now what? Like what on earth does that have to do with political philosophy, whether or not God owns us? Does that make sense? Like that's why in my mind they are separate domains. Yeah, there's a lot of ways we can go with that, but let, let's start. Oh, great, with... we can just keep talking more. <laughs> Well, what I would say is that, okay, so there's the relationship we have to God and there's the relationship we have to each other. What I would say is that because we are Christians, the relationship we have to God then gives us a set of rules and guidelines that determines our relationships to one another. Okay, fair. Okay, and what I'm saying is that some of those relationships, if we see from the New Testament, to sort of maybe backtrack a little bit to James, uh, doesn't quite mesh as nicely with, a radical self-ownership view of how I treat somebody else. See, a libertarian, you know, qua libertarian, let's do the plumb line argument from, from Block. Let's Mr. Plumbline. You know, he sees, <laughs> right. he sees uh, you know, a relative who's hurting or, you know, in, in some sort of duress. He's like, well, you know, look, you're a relative, but, you know, I don't owe you any positive obligations. I'm just going to walk on and whistle down the street. Now, a Christian would say, well, hold on, hold on. You know, you're a relative, friends, family, whatever. I got to help you out. Now, no, he's not going to say that because he's appealing to the libertarian self-ownership principle. He's going to say that because he's going to appeal to what God has said in the New Testament. And I'm saying that these two don't necessarily line up on the same track as neat and nicely. So I I have a follow-up. Doug, I I actually would have to sort of affirm to a sense, to a large extent, what Todd has just said. Because I don't think that the God exists, so what? is not a sufficient answer and it doesn't, but it, while I might agree that like there are these different fields as we've stated, I'm not, it's kind of like, it's, I love what one of my former minister said, like if the tomb is empty, if the cross is bare, then everything changes. And I think that's real. So. Right. I would agree with that. Yeah. Right. So, so that's where I, I'm going to disagree with Kinsella in that respect. Well, (laughs) my whole, so what, or who cares, or that's not related was really more about, and, and I'll ask it this way to, connect what you just said, Todd, to me, the way I'm thinking here. 
is that is there anything in scripture or the New Testament or in our relationship to God? So affirming the God owns us. And and we haven't even talked about the fact that God's not a Lockean, right? So like, you know, he's not beholden to these conceptions of self-ownership that we're imposing upon in the last 300 years. So like, but just assuming that, okay, God created us, homesteaded the earth, he owns us or whatever. And we can sort of say that God has purchased us, redeemed us. However, we want to go with that. Let's affirm that for, for the sake of the rest of this here. Is there anything about that that says, I now have permission to use force or violence to tell other people how they should live. No. To me, that's why I would say, well, then me making the argument that God owns you, Stefan Kinsella, therefore, what? Like, what can I tell Stefan Kinsella okay. that, well, God owns him? Well, that's not useful. And, and again, I don't want to make us all about usefulness and utility, but like, I don't, <laughs> I don't have anything. Yeah, we're not there. utilitarians. You're right. <laughs> let, me, let me add another point. I, I am sometimes, <laughs> some days. Because obviously the elephant in the room is government. And so... Mm-hmm. How, how elephant. Would, how would, Dude, it's like a angry. Uh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a half Oceros. elephant, half donkey, isn't it? No, that was a better joke than what I was making. <laughs> <laughs> if we use the sort of like Mr. Plumline position, or even right, a left libertarian, those are out there too. Sure. The general yeah. consensus is that when the government is getting onerous and, and you know, a problem, you know, raise the black and gold flag, you know, hashtag resist. Now, <laughs> I will not comply. They don't necessarily escalate to armed resistance. I'm not saying sure. that. But what I'm saying is they're malicious noncompliance, passive noncompliance. That's sort of the default response that that kind of... Sure. The way I would read, say, like Romans 13 with how the Christians should submit to the government, a stupid law isn't necessarily a sinful law. So I would argue that even if the government is making a stupid law, the Christian would still be obligated so in the same way that when, when Christ takes the, pays the temple tax, he has the fish and he says, mm-hmm. here, take the two coins. For the sake of keeping up appearances, for the sake of not causing trouble, Peter, go ahead and pay the tax. And he says, you know, just, just do that so you don't cause any trouble. And when the Christian does draw the line in the sand and say, hey, whoa, you know, this is idolatry or this is murder or this is something I just can't do. The place yeah. from where they're coming is different. They're not saying, well, good Mr. Government, you're, you're imposing on my free choices here. They're saying, no, Mr. Government, you're, you're transgressing the divine law. And so yeah. I would argue that they're coming from a different point. And the Christian will put up with more onerousness before they'll take that stand. And the reason why they take that stand is going to be somewhat different than the reason why a libertarian might take that stand. They might be the same stand. But they might both be standing against the same injustice. Yeah. The Christian will take longer to get to that point, mm-hmm. and the threshold is going to be much higher based on, well, not to put it to put it bluntly, taking the high ground, because as Christians, we are supposed to take the high ground. So you're saying that the <laughs> plumb line libertarian view has an earlier point of resistance to the state than a Christian would probably have. Yes. And the reasoning would be different. The reasoning for that resistance. I can see that. I mean, that doesn't seem, that doesn't sound wrong to me. Yeah, but is there a difference between like opposition versus resistance here? Because there, there are plenty of things that I oppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I absolutely, you know, let's say I absolutely oppose vaccine mandates. You were right. going to say that. Right? <laughs> that's yeah, like the I one mean, thing, that's the only, mm-hmm. yeah, not the only, yeah. but that's like the thing. Well, that's the elephant in the room. That that is 
<laughs> elephant donkey. <laughs> Donkafin. But donkey fent. I oppose vaccine mandates, but I'm not going to start an armed resistance over the fact that they could right. theoretically exist here. There's a difference there, right? And in fact, like I'm not really convinced that it's a good idea really to come up in armed resistance about pretty much most things. I mean, heck, if if 1776 were any indication, we would already have flipped over the you know the capital by now. But that's not what we do, <laughs> and we understand better than that. Yeah. So I, I think that there seems to be a disjuncture there. At least, well, like, by way okay, of clarification, Todd, are you talking about opposition or actual resistance and or refusal? To well, yeah, yeah. So let me, let me put it this way: if if say a Christian, like let's go back to the, the Daniel's three friends when they were told to bow sure. down to the idol, that is, you know, not that's a line in the sand, like a line in the sand. Yeah, right. That's not complying with a government mandate. But what I would argue is, when you say resistance, I feel like there's a when you unpack what all that means, mm-hmm. it means a kind of organized, intentional, minimally malicious noncompliance, all the way up to violent insurrection. It, right, it's, it's on a okay. spectrum. So yeah, it's on a spectrum, okay. But, but it's an intentional sort of like default. Oh, well, I'm just ready to fight whoever is, you know, cramping my style. Whereas yeah. when the Christian has a line in the sand, he's not doing that because you're cramping his style. He's doing that, or even like the faithful Jew, they're doing yeah, that yeah. because they believe that God has issued this law that is very important to keep, and we're going to keep that rather, as Peter said, we'll obey sure, God sure. rather than man. And so, I guess just, just to highlight the underlying issue a little bit, if we look at the starting principles of Christianity and then the starting principles or the starting axioms of libertarianism, and we look at them separately, they all branch out into a lot of different conclusions. Now, and then if you try to map them on top of each other, the thing that I'm concerned about is you'll you'll have non-overlapping conclusions, which creates waters to navigate. And if the if the Christian libertarian isn't careful, he could fall into the plumb line trap and say, "Well, I'm just doing the plumb line stuff." But you're also a Christian, bro. You got to do this other stuff too. And it's like, but I'm a libertarian, so I'm going to do this. And you know, by not being careful, that person then is maybe being a suboptimal or bad Christian. And the yeah. problem th- this is not just a problem with libertarianism, but any sort of like first principles philosophy that I've seen like the last 200 years, if you start with those and then you put them next to Christianity, the starting assumptions are different and therefore lead to different conclusions and how far you want to go down either path. Because if you go too far down one path, you have to ask, are you even a Christian anymore? Because some of those conclusions directly contradict a more robust mere Christian position. I have to note here that those of you not watching can't see that we're nodding our heads in agreement with Todd here. And so so we'll have to talk about, you know, what that looks yeah. like. But just, you know, just a little plug for watching. No, I mean, I think that's a really interesting, you know, like it's a good point of view to remember. But I guess it's like, to me, libertarianism is of, of a similar sort of bent as mathematics. It's like, it's not the kind of thing that is the result of a worldview that is antithetical to the way in which Christians can think, behave, live, act, work within, etc., but rather is a discoverable series of things that inform a variety of different potential activities. And in this case, it's what should institutions that have the power of force be able to do and what should they not do? So to me, it's not like, well, you started at some different worldview segment, which will just for the sake of things, uh, 
as you've seen with libertarians, like, you know, the, even the book, you know, it usually begins with Ayn Rand. Like, that's not <laughs> where we began here. Right. And, right. and that's not where libertarianism started from anyway. And as we all know, of course, you know, like Rand was not even a libertarian. So it's like, okay, well, whatever. But all these things to me are more just, these are discoverable in the same sense that mathematics works as opposed to, you know, they're the result of a separated worldview. And that's something that I've, anybody who's listening should, you know, if you, if you haven't been here that long, <laughs> then I guarantee you, if you go back in LCI's history and then beyond that, just what libertarianchristians.com was before that part of its history, well, that's always been a theme. Libertarianism is not some sort of additional worldview that we're trying to superimpose on things, but is subjected to the order of the world. And so we're drawing it out rather than trying to, you know, develop something new. Do you? To that point, real quick, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly the hinge point we needed to get to because obviously this was a two-part discussion, one about Christianity and libertarianism. And then also, so this is where I think the fundamental disagreement would be is that I, I don't think that libertarianism can be justified in this way. So let's go back to the law of non-contradiction. It can be justified transcendentally by saying, well, look, if, if you deny it, you're engaging in a performative contradiction. Because for what you say to even make sense, you have to already assume it to be true, but you're denying it. Now, that is precisely the strategy that Hoppe tries to use with mm-hmm. argumentation ethics. He's trying to root this as a transcendental argument that there's a performative contradiction being made here. If you say, well, I want to talk to you and have a debate with you, but I'm arguing that I'm going to violate your rights. And that's his argument. And that's, I think, where this kind of libertarian thinking comes from. And this is where I think, I don't think the NAP, or at least this kind of conception of libertarianism as something like mathematics, something like formal philosophy holds up. I don't know if you want me to, I think, I think just a little bit to go into it is sure, sure. Uh, in, in Hoppe's work, Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. On page 161, he talks about the self-performative, universalizable nature of the NAP. He says, well, look, to have a debate or conversation, what do we have to have true already? Well, we have to be alive. We have to be able to use our organs necessary to have such a debate, ears, mouth, tongue. And we have to have the right to the resources that we produce, because if we didn't, we wouldn't exist, right? If we didn't own the rights of our la- the fruits of our labor, according to Hoppe, we wouldn't exist. That's also a, an argument that Rothbard makes. Now, that's just the theoretical underpinnings of what must be the case to have a discussion like this. But I think a few problems arise, because, because one is it doesn't follow, well, that if you don't own the fruits of your labor the biological organism of man would cease to exist. For example, animals don't own the fruits of their labor, but as biological units, they still exist. So at most, you could say humans have an animal existence. I wouldn't recommend that, but that's not a contradiction that doesn't follow from any sort of first principle that Hoppe was trying to make. And in a 2006 article, Bob Murphy and Gene Callahan argued that at most, Hoppe proves that it would be a performative contradiction only exists with regards to the organs that you need to have the conversation uh, and only during the conversation. So for example, if a socialist were debating you over conscripting you to work for the collective or to fight against the, the fascists, he needs your arms, hands, and legs. You don't need those to have a debate. A quadriplegic could debate. And so 
you might disagree with what the socialist is saying, but he's not thereby performed a performative contradiction. And as David Friedman has pointed out, to argue for your own rights, you don't have to even have the right to own your body. You could be a slave who's being denied that rights, but a slave can still argue in favor of his rights. And so what I'm saying is that Hava has not proven that through argumentation ethics, that this is a transcendental argument of the same kind as denial of the law of non-contradiction. And to that extent would weaken any claim that this is a something on the level of mathematics or abstract uh, formal philosophy. Yeah, so the question is like, at some point, sort of like the incompleteness theorem, you know, strikes us somewhere. You know, no matter where you go and you keep backtracking, you're going to probably have one of those, something that you're going to have to assume. And uh, to an extent, and I guess this goes back to the earlier part of the conversation, there has been this assumption of self-ownership that has kind of resounded in Western thought on some level, you know, ever since Locke, and that has been extremely beneficial of a kind. And we have not always had the perfect way of explaining it. And I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with your all your criticisms there. And I don't think it's necessary to try and, you know, and parse all of that out right now as we're drawing to a close. But what your criticism, you know, if valid, what that means is that, well, we haven't explained it well enough yet. So the question, I guess, is like if we going back to the Christian case is like if we suggest that some measure of this self-ownership principle flows out of, you know, the Christian, the Judeo-Christian ethic that has been built up over these eons here now, do we expect that it will have some type of logically consistent basis that we, you know, should build upon. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to even be, once they kind of agree upon that this is the starting point, that once we build out that they're going to make mistakes down the line. And I think that's, you know, what we've seen with some libertarians often is that, you know, oh, well, they somehow get this, oh, this is now becomes the justification for my libertinism. Mm -hmm. And we know that's wrong. That's without question. Like, we don't have to argue that as a Christian here. We all know where, where we stand on that. But I, I guess the, the question then comes like, okay, well, do those things existing negate the fact that this prior you know, foundation is correct? In a similar sense that we have all sorts of different consequences of various mathematical conjectures and theorems and proofs. And as they pertain to you know, the way in which you know, everything from your microwave operates to how satellites work and how you can you know, launch a blue origin rocket into space to how we're communicating over the internet right now. Certainly, we've made lots of mistakes scientifically there as well. And we find that out through experimentation and, and through working things out. But that didn't negate the prior foundations, even if we cannot prove every bit of that as Goodell thoroughly trounced, you know, 100 years ago now. Does that kind of make sense? Or am I, 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 am I totally that, off base? Well, the one thing that I, I just want to try to get some clarification on, right, is I'm not saying that we need to ignore Goodell. That's no, there is the incompleteness there. But what I'm saying is when we look at the chain of rational thought, beginning from the logical trinity of the law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle, then they flow downstream from that at different points. Now, the properly grounded axiom for a philosophy would be one that the denial of is actually engaging in the thing you're denying. Yeah. So with the law of non-contradiction. And that and that's the rigorous philosophical definition of an axiom. Sure, now, sure. 
of say Hoppe, Kinsella, and uh, yeah, Hoppe, Kinsella, and uh, Rothbard. Only Hoppe has attempted to prove it at that level that oh no, it is in something like this at that level, not some axiom at say a lower level, like say an axiom within matrix multiplication. That's that's a lower down axiom that still flows from higher axioms, right? So what I'm saying is that the, the NAP, I don't see it as an axiom is that foundational at that level of a transcendental proof. And what I've perceived the libertarians to have been saying over the last 20 years is that it is something like that. And what I'm saying is, minimally speaking, I don't think they've produced arguments good enough to demonstrate that. And that's all that I'm saying here tonight. Yeah. Now, does that still mean that you can't prove everything 100% from one point? Of, of course. But I'm not, I'm not asking a libertarian or anybody to do that. I'm just saying that given what I understand the libertarian claims to be, I don't think that they've adequately demonstrated their core principle to be on the level of that axiom. Yeah. So, and I think that if what we're trying to get at is simply that the work has not been finished yet. <laughs> it's like, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's fine to say. Like we can, you know, and we've, Certainly, are, are making that are making that known. I maybe I favor Hoppe's explanation a little more than you you at this time, but that's all right. I mean, we're all going to be fellow travelers on that point, at least. <laughs> so you know, we've gone into the what does it mean to define the NAP, and we've touched on scripture passages. We've touched on like what does the Christian say and so forth. Todd, I would like to know from you maybe a little bit. We can shift this discussion for a few more minutes. The question I would have is. As a Christian, okay, and like we can kind of put aside the libertarian justification for self-ownership, right? As a Christian, approaching the matter with people who are may or may not be other Christians, okay, so our society at large, dealing in, you know, the realm of politics in the very generic platonic sense, what is the claim of the Christian over anybody else? Is there a claim in some sort of like, no, you know what? God has revealed himself and this is what God expects. And, you know, you have to live this way. I mean, do you see the scriptures as justifying that? Do you see Christian theology as justifying a Christian's, you know, right? Or I don't want to use the word right because it might get confusing, but a Christian's ability to legitimately tell everybody else, Christian, non-Christian, that they can't fornicate or that they can't, whatever, you know, pick a topic. Right, right, right. So Pick you mean you mean that uh, as a Christian, right. given all the rules that we've submitted ourselves to, right? To what extent can we then say to other people, "Well, you need to stop what you're doing because that's wrong." Maybe rethink a whole lot of things and maybe come over to our side. Well, there's that. Well, I mean, is we, there we a difference certainly... between telling and forcing here. No, yeah, no. That's what. Yeah, that's that's a clarification. Yeah, it's yeah. the like in what. Okay, I'll we use should the word be telling right, people that like. Well, you, yeah, you, no, you, I get that. We, like, I don't. That's <laughs> yeah, not in yeah. question here. I hope that's not in question. That yeah. was not what well, my question was. Well, it was just was. that was a wording issue from your point. All right, fine. Um, <laughs> well, come on, like, you really think that I don't think that we should no, tell it's, other people? It's so, clarification. Um, all right. No, it really is more about in the political sphere, what biblical justification or Christian justification from a pacifist perspective, even, do I have to tell? My neighbors, you can't fornicate. And when I say neighbors, I mean two well, separate neighbors who are married. Yeah, to each other. yeah. I mean, I mean, in, in one sense, I think you can. In the sense, I think you can is well, you can't do that because sooner or later you're going to have to pay up for that when God has the scales 
So in one sense, I would agree. But in another sense, it's like the implied question is, don't do it or else. Well, the or else isn't coming from me. The or else is coming from God. And so what I would say is, okay, guys, because there's always the or else behind that. Sure, but or else, how how is the or else coming from God in your mind? Well, at the end of the day, when we... That's end of days, literally. (laughs) Okay, so so judgment day, right? That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about more in a like okay, right now you really shouldn't do that because it's violating some sin and that disrupts the order of the universe or like, mm-hmm. why can't I make a law? As a Christian, why can't oh, we make a... Oh, you mean why can't a, I make a law? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, no, we're dealing with the state here. I mean, that's this whole, that's, that's right. Like, as a Christian, why can or can't I make a law that says you can't fornicate? Oh, I see, right, right. So what I would yeah. say is the, the, way, the way I would see the Christian relating to the state or, or not is that the Christian, well, when Jesus just talks about the powers of the bee, you know, he said he calls Herod that fox. There's this sort of indifference to the princes and rulers of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think Christians relate, should relate that way in that sort of indifferent way. Oh, that's just the fox over there doing his thing. Okay. They wouldn't be in that process. They wouldn't be in that sphere. That's very lips. Are you familiar with David Lipscomb? That's no. very Lipscomb. That's Lipscombian or whatever. I don't know. Ooh, you should, you that's should a tough name Lipscomb. to make a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not to be in advocating a yeah, particular sure. tradition, but from my own, the Churches of Christ. That's very similar to kind of the David Lipscomb's position. Well, and that's. I mean, it's clearly an Anabaptist position. I mean, Todd, you you come from that tradition. I respect that tradition a lot and and align with a lot of a lot of that. I would want to know though, like at some point. And again, I'm not talking about should we wish that everybody would then agree that we can all come together and make laws that say we can't fornicate, right? And we all like 100% agreement because we've all just agreed that, you know, we, we all became Christians and said, oh, well, now we know how to live and let's just make our society. I don't mean that in terms of like, you know, can we get everybody to voluntarily live under God's law? I don't mean it in that way. But like, is it legitimate for me to tell another person that because they don't own themselves, the state can make them do other things. If the state is doing, let's say just for whatever reason, the state aligns with God's divine law in a particular place. Again, we could just choose fornication for the sake of simplicity and a very obvious Christian thing. Like very Mm -hmm. few Christians, and I would even question that, would even, like very few, as in like, you know, a quarter of a half a percent um, (laughs) would say that fornication is okay. I would question your Christianity. But anyway, that's a way weird rabbit trail. So, I don't even know what else. <laughs> Do you understand my question though? Like, oh, and- let me let me repeat it back to you and see if yeah, I got. Yeah, sure. It. Okay, so we're already assuming that the Christian is in their separate sphere, but for whatever reason, the state is passing a law that aligns with Christian morality. Yes. And in this particular case, in this particular case, uh, what would we tell that? Per- what would I recommend you tell that person? Well, no, not what would you tell that person. Is it wrong for the state to tell people they can't fornicate? Oh, oh, oh. And, right, and punish right. them for doing so. Just yes. because, just because it aligns with God's law, does that mean that the state is the arbiter of that particular sin? Well, this is, again, where I think another fault line is going to be. I, I do think that people should obey the state up into a point per Romans 13. That when Paul says the state does not bear the sword in vain, and the law and the sword are for the ungodly, those that are harsh and cruel and wicked, that that is the sort of what the Calvinists might call a common grace to keep those people in check. Okay. 
Now that that's this, but that's again already pre pre stating that as two separate spheres. That's their sphere. This is our sphere. Okay. But having already stated that being in their sphere, that's sort of how that sphere gets checked from metastasizing. Yeah. Okay. I would say that's a that's a, I'd have to give that some thought to to sort of analyze my agreement with you on that um, in particular because you know of course dealing with Romans thirteen, there's a lot to think about and work through there. Norm, I don't know if you have any comments. I don't think I want to jump in too hardcore on that. I, I think I've made, you know, my own position fairly clear in my own writings on Roman 13 there. I don't fully agree with the way that Todd's at least explaining it here. And it's a particularly limited sense, I, I would say, but I don't think it's worth getting into in detail. Yeah. yeah. I think I would just suffice to say that, like, I still think that, for instance, you know, I am perhaps a good example of this again is the drug war that sure, like, yeah, the government manage it in a sense is part of the sword that is, you know, congratulations, you've been judged by the state and you also have the natural consequences of your own actions. If you, you know, shot yourself up with heroin, got in you know, trouble with the law in that respect. Nonetheless, I think it's entirely appropriate for the Christian to vehemently oppose the drug war, even though perhaps it was a punishment that was you know, from a transcendental perspective of from God's eye point of view would be potentially in the just per se, but like that, that still is an injustice perpetrated by the state, however, because of the way that what they are in the first place. So in, in it's right. like in the same sense that like, well, Babylon defeated Assyria and then was judged for it, you know? <laughs> right. So I, it does not suffice for me to say like, well, that's okay for them to do, and that justifies their existence and their and what they do. That certainly is not the case. I mean, God used Assyria to subjugate Israel, and then they got judged for it. So, like that's and Assyria got judged by God for it, and it's like that that perpetually goes down the line. So, I don't think it's necessarily you know appropriate. Like we can accept that it exists, but still criticize that it happens. I don't see any conflict there. Okay. At least. Any thoughts there, Todd? I think this I mean, is a whole separate discussion all on its yeah. own. Yeah. And that, okay. That's why I don't, I apologize. I, I said I wasn't going to We'll just shell this for the moment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, that, that's Sorry. fine. I mean, we're, we're at that point where we've talked about a lot of things and I don't know if there's anything like just sort of floating out there that we like touched on that might need to just be kind of brought in or anything. Todd, if you have any like last thoughts of, you know, recommendation for libertarians to think about, for libertarian Christians to think about in terms of your point of view? I think what I would recommend is that, again, this isn't a debate, and, and that's that's fine, sure. but I would recommend that they watch my two debates with Casilla and Block on the NAP, which gets into more of the underlying suspicions and underlying concerns that I have. Mainly that I don't think that this can be treated as something like a transcendental logical axiom. Now, I didn't actually do any debates about hobby and argumentation ethics, so that part you, you can't really see, but a lot of the other stuff you can see. Yeah. Okay. Norm, do you have any, any wrapped-up thoughts? I mean, we can... No, I, I'm glad to have had the discussion with Todd, and you know, I appreciate his candor and his, uh, his willingness to just you know, be open about all this. I think it's interesting. You know, I think that perhaps I have a higher view on certain elements than, of certain parts of the argument than you know, a higher opinion of them rather than Todd does. And that's okay. You know, we're both on the same side here and on the side of the, of our Lord. 
together and we're appreciative of that. So, you know, to that end, I think that if anything, this tells us that we all we do have more work to do as libertarians to logically ground everything that we can in the best reason possible. And if it turns out that we, you know, have certain things incompletely done, then let's get better at regressing that back and getting better at it. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting it's an interesting discussion to have and worthwhile as scholarship goes. And yeah, I'll kind of conclude with this. One thing that I've always said about LCI and about LCC and prior to LCI, you know, if all we manage to accomplish as an organization and whatnot is to just increase the level of conversation regarding these types of political virtues or disvirtues of the state in this regard, then I think we will have accomplished something. And uh, so I think that's it's important to have these sorts of discussions. And I'm just appreciate Todd being on here to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like the discussion. I'm a sucker for hearing people's critique of my own beliefs <laughs> because it, you know, it, you know, iron sharpens iron and, and, you know, there's a way in which it can be like, oh, well, oh yeah, I guess maybe my thinking is sloppy or maybe I haven't actually thought about that one element. And of course, you know, I tonight was, wasn't convinced per se, but can be sort of challenged in a way that, you know, improves the way in which I argue things. Todd, I hope we've done somewhat of the same for you in a way. I mean, obviously, I mean, even Norman and I disagree on a few things here. And, you know, Norman and I talk about things we disagree about off air all the time. Maybe sometimes on air. I don't know if we've ever done that. But yeah, so I, I really appreciate the the three-way conversation. We actually got some feedback in the last long-form conversation that Carrie and Nathan and I had regarding abortion that these are really, really helpful and instructive more so than like our 30 to 40 minute episodes. So I really appreciate listeners how I don't know if you're worn out on your treadmill or on your bike (laughs) route or whatever, but uh, I'm glad that you've kept us for the journey. And if you're watching, thank you for watching and keep promoting our YouTube channel as well because we're trying to build that up because we do our round table, we do a whole bunch of other things there. And uh, so maybe for our next long form discussion, we can talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Um, hey, there you go. So, hey, and before, before we conclude, though, we do need to oh, do yeah. one other thing. And that yeah. is, Todd, please tell everybody where they can find you online. You know, your Twitter handle, website, podcast, whatever. And please give a plug for what you do. Oh, yeah, exactly. If you go onto YouTube and type in Praise of Folly podcast, that'll be my podcast. Todd, Todd, what is Praise of Folly? <gasps> Tell us what uh, Praise of Folly is. Well, it was, it was inspired by Desiderio Erasmus's book, The Praise of Folly, which was written in the century. Good and old Erasmus. <laughs> my, my, my Twitter handle should be at Todd Lewis. So, Excellent. Nice. Well, reach out to him. Tell him uh, what you liked, what you didn't like. He'll, he'll certainly have a response, and we can keep this discussion going. I have a hunch that in the future we'll have more conversations with Todd. Yeah. So at this point, we're going to wrap up the episode. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 